You are listening to the most comprehensive source for news and views about today's unions. This is LaborUnionNews.com's Labor Relations Radio and your host, Peter List. You want answers? I think I'm entitled. You want answers? I want the truth! You can't handle the truth! Hey, thanks for turning on and tuning in to Labor Relations Radio. So I have been excited about this interview for the last couple of weeks. And let me tell you why. I have read a lot of books in my lifetime, um, and especially professional books in the last 30 plus years. Textbooks, professional books, how-to books, magazine articles, etc. And given that I work around human resources and human resources professionals... It is rare, if not, I can't think of another time I've read a book so good as 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR. And so I was very excited to have its writer, Patricia Garland, on and just to talk about human resources issues, if you will, and talk about her book. So I'm not going to give you a long introduction here other than to say that If you're in human resources, if you work around human resources, if you want to get in the field of human resources, you need to order this book. It's called 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR. And I'm going to provide a link under the audio portion of this episode. It's an easy read. It is packed full of information. It is nuts and bolts information, not so much theories and formulas and all the sort of crap stuff you get in HR textbooks. It is how to operate a human resources function department and what your role should be. In any case, without further ado, here's Patricia Garland. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. Well, Patricia Garland, welcome to Labor Relations Radio. How Thank you are for you? having me. Great. You were, um, you're a little bit under the weather last week. Your voice was gone, so you sound like you've gotten most of it back. Most of it. I still sound <clears throat> a little bit like Kathleen Turner, but. Um, oh, yeah. well, you're not quite as raspy. <laughs> Close. Having having laryngitis for a podcast is just not workable. Right. Exactly. So for the readers, um, <laughs> you and I have kind of known each other for a while through LinkedIn. Um, but can you give a, a brief background? And, and then I want to talk about your book. Um, sure. Um, I've been in. HR, literally from the very beginning of my career, I got a BSBA in industrial relations, as we called it back then. Um, I spent four years in the auto industry coming from Detroit. That's what everybody did. Um, I was in consumer products companies for about six years. And then in 1993, I joined Annexter in uh, the Chicago area, which is where I spent the great majority of my career. So you are um, what we would call seasoned human resources professional. Yes. At varying levels. So the book that you wrote, um, which is 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR, I loved. And Thank you. I, I, I keep saying this because it's rare that I am so impressed with something that I'm going to recommend it to all of the listeners and then some. And especially if you're not just HR at the beginning stages of your career, but like all the way up to CHRO, because it's kind of a 
It's a nuts and bolts to me. It's a nuts and bolts things that we do right and things that we should do better type of type of approach. And it's simple. Well, that's what I was aiming for. Yeah, it's simple reading. I didn't realize until um, I was actually pulling it up on Amazon uh, mm-hmm. that I was going to ask you this question. And it kind of got answered for me. Like, how did you come up with 33 ways? Why not 40? Why not 10? You know, but I guess there's a series of 33 ways of such and such. Yeah. The, the 33 ways series is the, um, is the concept of net worlding publishing, which is, um, founded by Melissa Wilson. And it is a, it's a platform for thought leaders to get their, vision into a book format that is that is a really interesting layout. So Melissa believes in the number 33 and uh it worked well for me. So is is there a is there a reason the number 33 is like the number as opposed to 35? She has a sort of a cosmic connection to the number 33. So Okay. <clears throat> like I said, it's worked well for a number of us who have written in that format. So how long did it take you to write this? Um, it took me about um, eight months. Okay. And for for the listeners, um, and I really, really hope you, that you order this, it's broken into basically 33 chapters on a whole variety of topics. Yes. And one of the, and I was, I was going to say we should probably, I'm, kind of want to start at the end and then work our way backwards maybe, but um, you cover the role of HR. And the one thing which intrigued me is the final chapter, which is safeguarding morale, yours. And I thought that would be a good lead off because what I've seen over the last couple years is there is a tremendous amount of burnout in HR. Yes. Yeah. And- I think that um, that's very true. And uh, <clears throat> it's a it's a function that doesn't get a lot of praise and gets a lot of criticism. So, as I said in the book, you have to learn how to stockpile your own praise and hang on to those moments where you know you made a difference. And there are a lot of them. They are just not necessarily broadly public. So l- let me ask you, where do you see the role of HR and where it's heading right now? Um, well, let me, let me say a word about where I see it right now. And I've seen it this way for, um, I'm going to say the last five, 10 years. Um, when I think of HR, it's starting to remind me of, you remember the parable about the blind men and the elephant? Yes. Where this group of blind men is trying to understand an elephant and the one blind man touches the trunk and says, oh, an elephant is like a snake. And the other touches the elephant's side and says, an elephant is like a wall. And another one touches the tail and says, an elephant is like a rope. Um, The HR seems to be um, devolving into specialties where very few people have the big picture anymore. And there's a, a real, real emphasis in the profession of You've got to get your seat at the table. You've got to be in the C-suite. Well, that's happening, 
But I think what I see happening as well is when it comes down to the level of middle management and below, um, those employees are not getting the support that they once did. Um, and I, I see a lot of um, blog postings and so forth from HR people whose primary complaint seems to be their employees are annoying them. Well, what are you here for? It's like right. it's like a salesperson saying my customers are a pain in the butt. That's kind of missing the point, I would say. Right. That's an interesting observation because um, I've, I've have seen that as well. I had a oh, have uh, you? yeah, <clears throat> and I've I had a guest on. It's interesting that you position it this way. Um, who's also HR, former CHRO, etc. And his I'm going to very very much bastardize and summarize his comment, but it's he said people are so enamored with moving up the chain into the C-suite or you know moving up their the politics within the organization that they're forgetting the main function. Yeah. I, I agree. Fortunately, I spent most of my career at a company who had a deep respect for employees at all levels. And if you wanted to have a conversation with, for example, the um, global VP of operations, you had better be able to describe what is happening on the floor in the warehouse. If you couldn't, you didn't have any credibility right off the bat. And so that was that was a great fit for me because that was that was what I enjoyed. Yeah, you hit this a couple times in the book, know the business. Oh, yeah. Which, which is like very, um, very good advice for somebody getting into HR, but also for people who've been around HR for a long time and jump from company to company. Yes. Like you, you need to know your business, not just HR. Yeah, your HR solutions won't have any credibility if they are not in the context of the business and responding to the business. Um, something else you mentioned a, a couple times in the book with respect to the role of HR, um, and then we just kind of touched on this briefly with regard to, you know, HR folks not liking employees. Or you didn't quite say it that way, but the employees are bothering them. The one thing you said, and it, you just hit it a couple different ways in the book, is if you want to get into don't get into HR if you want to be liked. Yes. Right. And that's our old joke. If you want to be liked, you should have been a fireman. Right. Yeah. And that, that seems to be, um, perhaps maybe I'm overgeneralizing, but some of the younger folks today want to get into HR because they like people and they want to be popular and stuff like that. They're, they're going to become disillusioned very quickly. Well, and I wonder if that's part of the problem that we're seeing kind of generally. It, it could well be. Um, I see a number of um, people coming out of college into HR who seem to view their role as um, almost like a union steward. Describe that. Um, the advocate of the employee to protect the employee from the manager. Okay. So let me broaden this out a little bit. Um, what is HR's role? Um, <clears throat> HR's role is to help make the business successful through people in its broadest sense. But when you're talking about that manager-employee relationship, to me, the relationship is between the manager and the employee 
at, at any level. This could be a VP, a VP reporting to a, a CFO, for example. Um, so that relationship is theirs. But we often are in a position to sort of provide the, the oil to that linkage and help it be more smooth. And you've got some recommendations on that. You, you mentioned, um, at least in one part of the book, how if an employee's got an issue with the manager, manager's got an issue with employee, HR is sort of the middle person to not necessarily fix it, but to help them resolve it themselves. Yeah, um, and, and we're often the invisible middle person. So when um, managers would come to me with issues about an employee, I would coach the manager for extended periods of time about what about this, what about this, um, how do we get to this point type of conversations. <clears throat> and in the same way, employees would come to me with a problem about their manager and assuming that it wasn't a misconduct type of thing that had to be investigated, the conversation would be, okay, so how do you want to handle this? And I would coach the employee through how to professionally approach that manager and solve the problem between the two of them. That is so much more successful than when HR people jump in between the manager and the employee when they really don't need to and try to be the hero in the situation. Yeah, I, I run across companies because um, we get called in usually when things are all broken, but I run across companies where HR is the ones when there's discipline to be done, like the, it's done in the HR office with the manager. No wonder everybody hates us. <laughs> right. And, and so, it, yeah, and it taints the employee's view of that human resource manager. Right. It becomes a dangerous place to be. Right. And it also um, reinforces the assumption people have, and maybe this is true in some companies, that HR is there to protect the manager, that HR represents the manager. And that should not always be true. So I've been having a discussion with a friend who is, um, and he, he doesn't want to come on the podcast, but I would love to have this conversation. But he, he expressed to me recently um, that HR's role is not, one of its primary functions is not to be an employee advocate, but its primary function is to be a risk mitigator. And I'm, I'm using my terms, not his, but it's essentially to protect the business. And if protecting the business includes not having EEO suits, not mm -hmm. having union campaigns, all of that, which would then go to employee advocacy, it's more to protect the business from external threats, if you will. I, I can see where that point of view comes from. Yeah, it, it was interesting conversation because I've always come at it because I'm an ex-union rep um, of HR should be at some levels the employee advocate, you know, mm -hmm. to ensure that they, they kind of are to take the place of the union or union rep. And you actually touch on this a little bit, not in that manner, but a little bit in the, in the book is, you know, if you're in your backgrounds, industrial relations, as you said, if you're um, wanting to be union free, for example, you know, get as much information about what's around you, contracts, 
I use the term union redundancy, but mm-hmm. you know, you you give you give HR leaders or HR generalists or whomever's reading it kind of a good reason to, you know, how you remain union free, basically making them unnecessary. Yeah, I, I like to take um, a representative union contract and sort of deconstruct it and say, okay, here's the, the jurisdiction clause. It establishes the union as a spokesperson for this group of employees. Um, who represents our employees today? Mm-hmm. Well, the employees represent themselves, which works if you listen and if you treat them with respect and take seriously what their concerns are. Um, <clears throat> there's a, you know, there's a, there's language about um, job posting, which is very rigid, often seniority based, that type of thing. And what do we have to replace that? How do you communicate opportunities in this facility? Um, do, does everybody know about every opportunity that's available? Does everybody have an opportunity to interview? And if they're not selected, is somebody sitting down with them and saying, here's where you fell a little bit short, and this is something I can work with you on if you want to have another shot next time? That's that's how you make a union unnecessary, is by taking those kinds of steps. Right. The, so I've, I've got a couple questions with that. Um, what is your view? This is where unions have, you know, for years, their big ballywick, so to speak, is, has been seniority. Mm-hmm. And in a union-free environment, most employers don't view seniority as one of the big catalysts for either job promotion or layoffs or things like that. And we're seeing a lot of that in the tech industry right now. Well, I'll tell you <clears throat> from the company that I, as again, I spent the majority of my career, um, we had a lot of respect for long service. Um, we used it as a tiebreaker when we had you know multiple people who were interested in a position. Um, we continued to give pay increases to long service people where a lot of other companies might have literally cut them off and said, that's as high as you're going to get. Because we recognized that the long service employees in many cases were sort of the, the anchors and the ambassadors on the warehouse floor. And we had a great deal of respect for that. And, um, you know, when it came to a reduction in force, if you have a long service employee who is a good employee and an employee with six months with the company who's a great employee, it's going to be the long service person who stays. Because even there's that slight distinction in in, um, performance, you don't even know this guy after six months. You're still in that honeymoon phase. You really know that long service employee. And this is somebody who's given a, you know, potentially a great deal of their career to the company. And again, they are the anchors and the ambassadors out on the floor and provide a great deal of value that goes beyond productivity, tasks, that type of thing. Yeah, we're, there's a couple headlines um, last week that there is a couple different tech companies, and I don't recall which ones exactly, that they're doing mass layoffs, you know, 1,000 here, 2,000 or whatever. And they're doing it, they're doing quick performance appraisals and then just whacking people via email. 
Oh, that's and, just contemptible and, to me. And then they wonder why they have union problems. Oh, my. Whacking people via email is just, I, I can't, I can't get my head around that. Yeah, it seems to be mostly tech industry these days. But um, so you touched on pay a second ago. And yes. with senior, and you've got a full, well, at least one chapter, if not two, on pay, paper for uh, pay for performance, variable pay, et cetera. I wanted to get your impression on this. Um, and as I got to find the chapter real quick, because the one thing that caught me at first, but then you had another chapter on pay for performance, is pay should not be used as a motivator. And I'm probably bastardizing that, right? Um, more along the lines of don't, don't expect base pay to be a motivator. Right. There it is. It, I, I think it motivates people briefly when they get an increase, but that wears off very quickly. Um, it, it is, however, base pay is a demotivator if people see um, inconsistencies, if they see that they are not being paid to the market, if it's not communicated clearly, it's a demotivator. Right. So, and this is where I, I it kind of like flagged for me. So I was always taught that pay should be used to attract, retain, reward, motivate. Right? I'll take and the so, first three. <laughs> right. And that's, that's why it like kind of raised the flag for me. Um, what we're seeing a lot across the nation is especially coming out of the pandemic, the labor shortages, as well as, um, you know, generally there's across the board, nursing, trucking, you know, blue collar workers, there's not enough of them out there is a lot of companies are raising the base pay mm -hmm. and it's, but they're not touching the more, if they are, it's minimal. They're not touching the more seasoned employees. So they're creating compression. Yes. And in some cases, with with hiring bonuses, they're actually creating inequities where they're hiring people at a higher rate than their existing employees. So that's that's wrong. Yeah, right. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, and I actually I had a nurse on uh, probably a couple months ago, and she was saying, and this is out in California where she used to work, she could quit her job leave for a little while, come back making $6 more per hour. And that's, that's a terrible way to do business. Right. It's so just how, not right. How do you address labor shortages as, as bad as they are and needing to attract employees in while still maintaining equity with your existing employees? Um, what we used to do when we were hiring, um, <clears throat> when we had to increase, we used to fixed, starting rate for our hourly employees. And when we needed to increase that, we would increase it in a cascading fashion. So um, let's say we increased it by a dollar an hour. Anybody who was already with us got an immediate dollar an hour. Oh, so you and, went and one took for them one. To the new. Right. And then anybody who had been with us for a couple of years um, might get 50 cents Anybody who had been with us longer than that might get 25 cents. <clears throat> and this is in addition okay. to their regular merit increase. But the idea was because we did pay for performance, the employees who had been with us for a long time had had a lot of opportunity 
to distance themselves from that starting rate through their merit increases. Okay. But we, we so, did watch that compression and that internal equity very, very closely. So you, you stretched it out, kind of feathered yes. it up, so to speak. Yeah. So now how do you address something like the hiring bonuses that I know trucking companies are doing, you know, $5,000 to come on. If you stay on for six months, it's another $5,000. That's a $10,000, you know, nursing, you know, same thing are happening in hospitals. I don't know how they, how they address that. We, we actually talked about that at one point and that was the exact conversation we had is what am I going to say to, um, you know, Alex, who's been with us for five years and, um, sees the guy that just walked on the job who he has to train getting a $2,000 bonus, which is a tremendous amount of money. If you're making $18 an hour, right? I couldn't figure out how to justify that. So we didn't do it. You just, I'm sure the companies that are doing it have thought that through and I'd love to hear what they would say. I'll see if I can get somebody on someday. (laughs) Um, Let me let me ask you theoretically, um, and I have not actually done the work in terms of numbers on this, but have you ever thought about or have you ever done um, length of service pay? So and it, it could be a nickel more per hour per year of service or 25 cents or something like that to kind of feather it up and keep that distance between mid and max, min and max. Well, that, that is in part what we did when we when we increase starting wages that's what we call a structural increase okay so based on length of service we did give the longer service very well paid people a little bump um it it wasn't a lot i think we the the least we would do was 25 cents so was that like a a formulaic type of you know one year equals a nickel, two years is another nickel, and you know, all the way yes. up that way. Okay. It was, if you're in this, in this um, service band, we'll give you 50 cents. If you're in this service band, we'll give you 25 cents. And again, <clears throat> that was on top of their regular merit increase. So they didn't change their merit schedule based on this. All right. So let's get to merit increases because this seems to always be an issue in the companies that I go into and they usually are broken somehow. Mm-hmm. Um, it, merit increases tend to lend themselves to favoritism. Yes. Um, bad performance reviews are not um, not known by the employee until it's done and they don't get a good increase. Yeah. So how do you address merit increases? How do you set one up that's okay for the employees? Well, you, you brought up an important point, which is um, to, to have a good merit increase practice, you have to have good performance communication. That's the first thing. Um, which goes to you, your supervisors and managers, yeah, right? Exactly. And that goes to a lot of training and coaching. Um, and then let's assume you have good, proactive, honest performance communication. Um, <clears throat> you have to be able to measure or define performance. I, I think I, I said that point blank in the book. Mm-hmm. If you can't define performance, you can't do performance increases. And the problem with a lot of companies these days is they do 
quote, merit increases, but they, to the first point, they don't instruct their supervisors and managers on how to coach the employees throughout the year. And so the employees yeah. wind up surprised that they, they think they've done a good job throughout the year, but then they are surprised they don't get an increase or a minimal increase due to the fact that their performance sucked. Yeah, and it's it's a matter of the supervisor sitting down with the employee <clears throat> six months before that increase would be would be coming due and saying, listen, your your productivity is not where it really ought to be. Here are the numbers. I think you can do better than this. Um, but I, I want you to be thinking about the fact that if you don't kick up your productivity a bit, it's going to hold back your merit increase and you're going to be disappointed when July rolls around, for example. So does HR have a role in ensuring that that happens? Um, absolutely. And how do through you do training, that? through coaching. Okay. Coaching um, the supervisors. Yes. And, and again, all of this behind the scenes. Um, the supervisors may be, might be having that conversation that we literally scripted for them. But the linkage, as I said before, is between the employee and the supervisor. So, Pat, let me ask you, what is the quality control? Um, maybe that's not the right term, but the quality control for, the, to, for HR to ensure that those conversations are taking place? Um, they are, in, in my world, it was a lot of follow-up with the supervisors and the managers. Okay. Yeah. It, it, and, and frankly, when they didn't take place, the employees would say their piece, and then it would end up back with us. So we would know what had happened. Oh, so you're you're kind of overseeing the merit increase process through what you're seeing coming back from the meeting. Yeah. Right. Okay. And and this also happened. <clears throat> um, I I was always adamant that if somebody is identified as a poor performer, they're not getting an increase. Period. <laughs> Poor performers should not get increases. If somebody is on the verge of being terminated and you give them a pay increase, you're essentially lying to them. You're setting them up to fail. And sometimes saying, listen, we've talked about your performance for most of this year. Um, You're not going to get an increase, as I told you six months ago, um, because you're in danger of losing your job. You've got to fix this or not getting a pay increase is going to be the least of your concerns. Sometimes not getting a pay increase is the one piece of feedback people actually hear when they've tuned everything else out. I've seen a zero pay increase turn around people's performance when multiple coaching conversations didn't do it. Well, to add to that, if, for example, um, you've got a poor performer and the manager or supervisor gives that person a full increase, rates them fine on their performance review, and then two months, three months later, you terminate that person. That doesn't look good. (laughs) Yeah, is that not evidence that the person can use on an EEO claim or wrongful discharge claim? Absolutely. So it's, um, and I'm kind of emphasizing this because, a lot of HR folks these days just leave it to management or supervisors to do their own thing, and they don't really take a hands-on approach to it. In, in my department, 
we used to sit down with the with the leadership team and develop the entire merit plan with them. You know, what is this person's performance? How did you rate this guy or gal? Um, <clears throat> what are you proposing for a merit increase? Wait a minute. You're saying he's a great performer and he's paid significantly below the median. Why are you proposing 3%? Why not 5%? You know, right. that's the guy that you're in danger of losing. The great performer who's paid low to the median. The okay performer who's paid above the median, that's where you want to put the 2% because he's already paid for his contribution. Right. So let me let me shift this a little bit to more variable pay. Um, you do have a chapter talking about variable pay. Yes. So one of the things that I've found over years with variable pay, I love variable pay. I used to work in a union shop with incentive, right? So our incentive pay, although it got negotiated way away in the 80s, um, it was a good motivator, so to speak. What kind of incentive pay was it? Um, to simplify it, it's, you know, if you need to do 100 pieces per shift, you, anything above that was going to get you, get the department as departmental uh, incentive. Get the And how often was more. it paid? Once a month. Okay. That's, so, that is an incentive plan. Right. And it was good. Unfortunately, it got negotiated away, um, which <clears throat> the productivity in that plant went way down. It is mm-hmm. due to a strike in the mid eighties nationwide strike. But, um, but I, I have always liked that. And what I've found over the years going into different industries with variable pay is that oftentimes these employers will set up some sort of metric that employees have to, you know, do this, this, and this. And then there's some, like algebraic equation, throwing in some trigonometry to come <laughs> up with some numbers of that's what their incentive pay is going to be. And I find that right. it then becomes the demotivator. Like, mm-hmm. And then if the employees meet it, they, they'll tweak it some more so it becomes harder. Exactly. That's, that's what I've run into as well. So <clears throat> um, I, I think you and I have talked about before the importance of line of sight between the individual's performance and their incentive pay. Mm-hmm. So the way I, I clarify this is to say, um, it's one thing to say to this employee, we're going to reward you when the company has a good year. Everybody likes the sound of that. <clears throat> Can you also say, we're going to hold you accountable when the company has a bad year? Are you going to sit down with that engineer or that accountant or that that uh, forklift driver and say, we're going to hold you accountable for company productivity? Probably not. So that's your first clue that this really isn't an incentive plan. Now, what you described, you could very much in good conscience say, we are going to hold you accountable and reward you for your own um piecework or, or whatever the, the right. nature of the bonus is. So that's where you've got a really good line of sight. But when you're saying, I'm going to bonus everyone in the organization for company profitability once a year, um, that's not really an incentive plan. To me, that's more of a profit sharing plan. And that's that's a whole different ballgame. 
Good point. Um, yeah, there is a difference between incentive versus profit sharing. The one of the issues with um, some of the incentive plans I've seen is that they tie it they tie it into productivity. However, there it's so broad that there are so many other variables that can screw it up that the operator or the production person or whomever has no influence on it. Right, and that again is a demotivator if they're being held accountable for things that they can't control. So what what I liked about, and I like having these conversations, I liked about the book, and what I found is you are the, um, I, I hate to use the term old school, but you're... A, you're <laughs> Watch a, it. <laughs> well, I know, but it's I have had a hard time finding compensation people that actually understand compensation over the last 10, 15 years. And to the point where I belong to an organization where there's multiple consultants and groups and companies, excuse me. And I've said, we need to find a comp person, a good old fashioned comp person who knows how to design comp plans. And we can't find anybody. my, my quarrel with comp people, and I have been one, is um, we tend to make things way more complicated than they need to be. <clears throat> and um, we try to make comp into a science, a pure science, when there's still a lot of art in it. Right. Yeah, there used to be an organization, um, is the American Compensation Association, which I think now is World at Work or something yes, like that. They, they morphed into World at Work. Very good organization. Yeah. Um, I haven't heard so much about them anymore since they they changed their name, but they they used to be very well known for designing comp plans or having people to help with compensation. Yeah. They also have a really robust training program. I actually mentioned in the book <clears throat> being at a, one of their classes on benchmarking because I, uh, <clears throat> I want, I, you know, I, I'd done an awful lot of benchmarking, but I wanted to make sure that I wasn't just um, in my own echo chamber and that I was well aware of what was happening in the industry. And um, <clears throat> the example I give in the book was, as a class, we were trying to come up with a um, sort of a manufactured benchmark for a job that was a hybrid between a a plant safety specialist and an HR clerk type position. And they were trying to um, come up with a formula where, well, the job is 50% of one and 50% of the other. So we'll use the two benchmarks and weight them equally. And, um, you know, the, the thing that I had to point out to the class, it's like, do any of you recruit? Right. no. Well, you can't get a plant safety specialist for this pay rate. Not going to happen. So you either need to pay something closer to the higher rate or, which was my solution, recognize that you've created a bad uh, a bad hybrid job. These two pieces of work don't go together. And that's the problem here is the construction of the job itself. So how... How long ago was that, may I ask? That was probably, um, I don't know, eight years ago here in Chicago. And did the light bulbs go on when you did that? 
um, I had a lot of comp weenies in the class who were looking at me like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I know this is audio only, but they were looking startled. <laughs> right. But that's, that's another point I've made in the book is <clears throat> if you spend a lot of time in compensation, you need to be very aligned with your recruiting people, your talent management team, because your talent management team is going to see labor market changes way quickly, way more quickly than your, your comp surveys. Right. Dive into that a little bit more because um, it's often that we'll run across employers that do comp studies periodically once a year, once every couple years, and they want to be in the top 50% or, you know, top 30% or whatever. But your, your comp surveys are inevitably about a year out of date. And you can trend them if you're talking about um, a lot of a lot of career positions. But the deeper into the organization you go, the more that pay changes very quickly and the more localized it is. Localized to the point where <clears throat> um, it's not a question of what is this job paid in this city or this state so what is this job paid in this industrial park? Right. And we're seeing And all it takes is for Amazon to move in down the street and use a starting wage that's $2 higher and suddenly you have a crisis. Well, if you're looking at comp surveys, they don't even see that crisis, but the people who do your talent acquisition see it coming a year in advance because they know Amazon is scouting the property. And on top of that, the employees know it. They know it probably oh, faster yeah. than the talent acquisition people. They do. And I'm, I'm happy to say that we had any number of times when employees came to us, said, I'm going to go work for, I won't mention any names. And we said, you know what? We think you're going to like it better here. So try it out. Go work for that other company. And if you decide you want to come back, give me a call. And I'll be darned if they didn't all come back within six months. You mentioned this in the book that um, don't be afraid to bring back good performers. Yes. I'm paraphrasing that. but And there is a lot of employers out there that will say, well, if you leave, that's, yeah, the door only swings one way. Yeah. So why is it a good practice <clears throat> to bring back performers, ex-employees? Well, it's, it's a good practice when whatever caused them to leave has been resolved. Okay. I would not bring, you know, for instance, if, if someone says, I'm leaving because I can't stay on the commute anymore and um, this other employer is right down the street from my house, if they decide they don't like that employer, and this is a job that has to be done in your office. I wouldn't bring that person back because that, that issue still exists. But if you're, um, you know, for the example that I just gave, um, and I'm, I'm thinking of particular warehouse um, employees, I'm going to go work for that other distribution company because they're paying $2 an hour more. And, you know, I can't argue with that. And then a couple of months later, they're they're back saying, there's a lot more to what made me like working here than how much I make. Mm -hmm. 
and, and, and that's a point that I've made to many employees is employers who pay above market are generally making up for something else they can't offer you, whether it's a good environment, stable hours, you know, um, a long-term future, a lot of things. But for the example I, I gave, I gave in the book was the, the employee who was furious that the company down the street was paying was, you know, bannering their building and saying, we're starting people at whatever. And he said, you know, that's dollars more an hour than I make. And I've, I've been here for five years. And I said, yeah, but they'd have you working third shift in a commercial freezer. That's right. what they're paying that premium pay for. If you want to try it, by all means, but just understand these are not apples to apples situations. They're paying premium pay because they can't give you a good work environment. That's like hazard pay. Right. But those are those are great conversations to have. And I have those on the warehouse floor. Yeah, I don't know that um a lot of people have those conversations or they well, in today's market, what you see is those conversations not taking place and instead the employer just going on and trying to up their wages. You know, yeah. So we're going to get into a wage competition and, you know, I've seen this literally in the last couple of years with a couple of different trucking companies who are competitors. One would do a, you know, $5,000 high uh, sign on bonus. The other would do a 7,500. The next one would come back with a $10,000 sign on bonus. Like, holy cow, you're just out trying to outbid each other. Well, at some point, you've got to have confidence that you as an employer um, don't have to be the highest paying job in the neighborhood because you'll never win at that game. Right. You've got to have the best total deal for your employees. And that includes not only competitive pay, but competitive benefits, a good environment, a supervisor who knows your name and listens to you, you know, there's a whole big package surrounding the employment deal that goes beyond pay. So let me, let's parse those out for a second. Um, the benefits package, again, this, I have not seen this as being as big of an issue as it has in years past. Uh, but for years we've had employers who have had to increase the employee's portion, or not necessarily portion, but the employee's costs on their benefit plans because benefits have escalated so much over the last 20 years. Right. But on top of that, I've also seen a lot of employees that don't realize that their employer still pays the bulk of their benefits, which gets into yeah. communication. Yes. And then they go on, you know, they leave the organization, go on COBRA and say, what? Right. <laughs> so how do you... How do you address making sure that the employees know what their total rewards are, including the benefits? Um, that's communication. And um, like a lot of employers, um, I've been part of organizations that did benefit statements that laid out in dollars and cents what the full um, value of the employer subsidy was. Yeah, I've heard it. Uh, term different things, hidden paycheck yeah, you know, or total rewards or total compensation, you know, statements, stuff like that. A lot of employers seem to be, well, they were getting away from that. Some are starting to come back with doing that. 
I think it's important. It's a very big part of um, <clears throat> the value of the employment um, relationship. People should huge. know what their benefits are worth. And I, I design benefit plans. So um, I could, I could talk that all day long. Right. It, the, um, and I don't know if, what the actual numbers are these days, but it, you know, depending on from employer to employer, but if you're looking at say a $10 an hour wage or whatever the numbers are, roughly 30 to 40% or three to $4 on top of that are your weight or your benefits, right? Yes. And I, I don't know that most employers explain that to employees. Yeah, I, I think it's an important thing to explain. They need to understand um, the value of everything that goes into that employment relationship. And it's it's a huge opportunity for employers to engender, um, maybe loyalty is the wrong word, but at least enjoy engender some sort of positive employee experience if they know yeah. what their their benefits cost. Yeah. It, um, appreciation. Yeah. Might be a way to put it. Yep. Um, the other, the other part of benefits that I find a lot of employers lacking is when we're talking about communication, there are, um, many different languages in the workplace today. Yes. And so what happens is a lot of employers will put out a benefit statement or any other employee communication in English, maybe Spanish, but they don't do a deep enough dive into the workplace to find out, well, we may have um, other languages, Vietnamese, you know, Chinese, Mandarin versus Cantonese and all that sort of yeah. stuff. That's very hard to do. And from an HR perspective, it's, and again, and I guess for the listeners um, to understand this, we usually, as I mentioned, only go into companies that are broken so, or have problems, right? So I usually only see the worst side of employers, not necessarily the good side and what they're doing right. Um, but I've, I've found over the years that not enough companies are keeping up with the multiple languages that they have in the workplace. Yeah. And um, customs. And customs. Um are, again, speaking of my last employer, which is where I spent most of my career, um, our employees, by and large, were, even if it was their second language, were fluent in English. Um, but we still translated training materials, and we, we had to translate them globally. Mm-hmm. So in some cases, the work was already done. Well, that's helpful. Um, you mentioned in in the book a little bit about like using software or you know apps and and the technology for benefits explaining benefits etc that's that's the other thing i wanted to mention is if you're doing that ensure that you've got the languages in there too right yeah well the other the other component of that is um there were many times when <clears throat> my employer would have plan to roll out some grand communication surrounding or enrollment on benefits or, or what have you. Um, and it was all, you know, well, they just go onto their laptop and I'd have to stand up and say, wait a minute, yeah. we have thousands of employees who don't work on laptops. 
They're right. in trucks or they're on, you know, on a, a warehouse floor. You've got to have a way to do this um, by cell phone, which 99.9% of people had. And if they can't do that, then they've got to be able to talk it through with a representative and do it over the phone. There's got to be a route for everybody to do this. You can't forget our people who don't have laptops. And that would seem basic. A lot of people forget the hourly associates. And is it out of malevolence or is it just over? Not at all. Right. It's it's just a lot of people don't have that much contact with them. Pat, let me ask you something, and I've I've tried to explain this to people over the years, um, but we see this now across society. When I was in the union years and years and years ago, decades ago, our belief on the factory floor was that management is out to screw the little guy. And, mm-hmm. of course, being part of the union and kind of in the infrastructure, our kind of job was to ensure that that message was always out there, right? Sure. Um, but now we're seeing it across society. And I mean, th- this is kind of a softball question. Do you think management's out there to screw the little guy? <laughs> um, not in any company I want to work at, but that's not to say that they aren't, they aren't out there. Right. I've, I found, no, I don't think that the was years, the softball answer, but <laughs> no, I, um, well, what I found over the years is most employers, when they screw th- when they screw up, they're not doing it out of, out of malevolence. They're doing it out of oftentimes ignorance. Um, and to your point, yeah, there are bad actors out there, but that's yeah. not the bulk of them. Like most of the time, supervisors who are short and to the point are just, they're not out there to be idiots or assholes, pardon my friend, yeah. but they're out there because they've got so much on their plate. They just blow by. They don't stop and talk to their employees. Yeah, they're rushed, and um, they come across as curt mm-hmm. when they don't mean to. Yeah, and that and it's kind of like slow down, listen to what the employees are saying, take the time to talk to them, ask them how their weekend was, basic <clears throat> stuff. Yeah. As, I don't know if it's just that they're not being taught this. If And you know, I've found this with HR managers, too. They're curt, to use your term, as opposed to mine. Um you know, they're curt with the employees. Well, it's not necessarily that they dislike employees. It's that they have a gazillion things going on and they don't yep. pause, <clears throat> stop, talk, listen. Well, and, and back to the role of HR, um, so much of the work that used to put us in touch with employees on a daily basis has been outsourced. Like what? Um, Benefits administration. Okay. If you've got a question, um, you're going to call a call center that isn't part of your employer. Right. So what advice would you give the HR person? Um, The HR people have to be available as a second stop. So if, um, if the employee isn't understanding what was communicated by the call center. There's got to be somebody that they can talk to inside the company. Making themselves available. 
And the employees need to know that. Yeah. You know, you just jogged my memory on something. On LinkedIn, I always get jobs popping up on my feed. And one popped up recently that made me really scratch my head. It was a a plant HR manager, remote. I'm like, how could you be a plant HR manager if you're not in the plant? Right. (laughs) How do you even do that? Well, that kind of goes back to the overall role. And I've been having these conversations both on the podcast as well as outside is I don't know that HR today knows what their role is or, or in fact, should their role be on the plant floor? Like how Mm -hmm. much interface time do you spend out of your office and on the floor walking around? Yep. Um, I know my team made a practice of um, first thing in the morning, just get out and walk around and, we always we always had a practice of um, don't just walk the main route, walk through the racks. This is a warehouse environment because there are people who are not going to be comfortable approaching you in front of all their coworkers who might kind of sidle up to you um, when you're in amongst the racks where there's nobody else around and say, hey, I'm having a problem. So get out on the floor, take the pulse, as I'm fond of saying, because you know what I'm talking mm-hmm. about. You can mm-hmm. walk into a facility and walk around and immediately know if there's a problem. It's it's like it's in the air. So at least do it once a day. Try to do it twice a day, and you know you can you can get this done by um, when you need to talk to an employee or a supervisor or whatever. Instead of picking up the phone, go walk to them. You'll find right. you can solve twenty other problems on the way there and the way back. And people are not going to bring touchy issues to you if they don't even know what you look like. Right. And that's, I, I see and hear this a lot. Um, and, and again, I'm somewhat biased because the types of companies we go into usually have problems, but you know, it's HR's faceless. Yeah. And, and people view us with suspicion and in many cases for good reason. So if you're also faceless, that's two strikes against you right there. Right. So, Pat, how's your voice doing? I'm holding in. Okay. As long as my water holds up. I know I sound a little squealy, but. No, I just, I wanted to, we had talked last week and, and, or via text, and you said you're good for about an hour in terms of your voice, (laughs) but you seem to be doing pretty well. So I wanted to ask you about your writing process because you've got Mm -hmm. 33 ways not to screw up HR. So there's 33 chapters. Did you outline this like, you know, counting out, okay, I need 33. So therefore coming up with 33 things, or did you have 50 that you pared down to 33? I had about 70 that I pared down to 33. Okay. And um, that was a very challenging process. Um, trying to distill an entire profession to 33 items is really tough. And, well, you, um, you did a fantastic job doing it. Oh, thank you. It's, um, I, and I was just wondering, what'd you leave out? <laughs> <laughs> I left out a lot, <laughs> but, um, those will, I'll save those for another book. And then within each of the chapters, um, I was trying to keep them between 500 and a thousand words. Right. So, you know, you said it was very straightforward, and I, I can't remember what else you said, but 
It had to be because I didn't have, I didn't have the room to be anything else. Yeah. And it's, I'm just, I showed you what I, I dog ear and, and highlight when I'm reading nonfiction and I've got every chapter dog eared and highlights on most of the pages. So to go through this like chapter by chapter and word for word, there's so many great points in here and it's for the listeners. This is 125 pages. It's a very easy, succinct and nuts and bolts HR, you know, what not to do in HR and things you should be doing in HR. And that's what I loved about it because I, you know, as I said, I've got a bunch of textbooks and other types of books and articles and stuff like that. And everybody's too wordy. This is, this is like um, Goldilocks porridge, right? Not too much. (laughs) It's not too little. That's what I loved about it. And the cover's gold. (laughs) Thank you. Well, there's a, there's a lot of points I make in the book that I, I think, um, are my own concepts that you're not going to see in a textbook anywhere. Mm-hmm. Like the part about um, compensation, having a horizontal and a vertical component. That's, that's my own language. I've never heard anybody else describe comp that way. And um, the notion that if you are intent on having a flat organization, you cannot have a 3% merit budget because if you do your managers in order to try to reward people for their growth within a job, instead of pushing them through the the, um, the pay grade, to use the formal terminology, they're going to create fake promotions because they don't have any other mechanism available to them. Right. So small merit budgets and flat organizations don't go together. It's an interesting point. Well, Pat, how did I, – I know – readers or listeners can order your book on Amazon. Is there other places to get it? It's all on Amazon right now. Okay. And it's available both in Kindle format and in paperback. Oh, good. I didn't realize the Kindle was on there. I don't use Kindle. Kindle's in there too. I I order the physical copy. Um, 33 ways not to screw up HR. And that's it. That is awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on Labor Relations Radio. Thanks, Peter. I I really enjoy your podcast. They're always thought-provoking. I love this book, and so I'm encouraging everybody to order a copy, and I'm probably going to give some away. That's wonderful to hear. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Peter. You are listening to Labor Relations Radio. So that was Patricia Garland seasoned HR professional and author of 33 Ways Not to Screw Up HR. As I mentioned before, I love this book. I think everybody in human resources, whether you're a beginner or seasoned in your career, should get a copy of it and read it. I'm going to leave the audio links to the uh, Amazon.com where you can order it, or apparently you can get it on Kindle as well. Again, I strongly recommend it. I love this book. In any case, that wraps up another episode of Labor Relations Radio. I'm your host, Peter List. If you want to reach out, you can reach out on Twitter. That's at Workplace Report, at Workplace RPT. Give us a call at 1-888-668-6466 or leave a comment under the audio portion of this episode. Thanks for listening and have a great week. Relations Radio.
Hey, Labor Relations Radio listeners, this is just a quick reminder. If you enjoy Labor Relations Radio, make sure you share these episodes with your colleagues and make sure you and your colleagues visit laborunionnews.com and subscribe to our News Digest.